Wherever the market is allowed to run rampant through excessive risk-taking, a lack of regulation, or corruption, then all are in danger, whether we live on the Mississippi or on the Volga. We are young, we are weak, just as blank as we Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson at glorious and beautiful Planet Money headquarters on the prettiest day of the year in New York City. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty nice out here in Seattle. I am Hannah Jaffewald. Today is Wednesday, July 8th. That was, of course, our president. You just heard at the top of the podcast, he was giving a graduation address at the New Economic School in Moscow on Tuesday. And today we are going to follow President Obama's lead. We're heading abroad. But first, we need to do our Planet Money Indicator, Adam. Yes. Today's Planet Money Indicator is two. Two dollars. Two dollars a day. So here's what this is. The World Bank counts that about 2.5 billion people on the planet live on two dollars a day. That's 40 percent of the people alive today, which is crazy. It's one of those statistics that you don't really know what to do with. And we here at Planet Money are paying more and more attention. We hope to pay a lot of attention this year on the world's poorest people, why they are so poor, and what their lives are like, and how they might become less poor. And and so we wanted to start with this big question, what is life like at $2 a day? And Hannah, what I found surprising is that it's much more subtle and complicated than you might think. There's an awful lot of solutions and sophisticated financial responses to life, even for those making what what to most of us seems like an, an unimaginably small amount of money. And, and by the way, Hannah, that's another one of these things. If we want to ask this question, what is life like at $2 a day? An obvious question is, well, what what's the comparable income here in the U.S. I mean, you know, maybe someone can live on $2 a day in sub-Saharan Africa or, uh, you know, parts of Latin America or Asia, but but they couldn't live like that here in the U.S., right? It seems like it'd be extremely hard given that I have already spent $6.75 today. Exactly. Well, here's what I learned talking to the World Bank. They mean, when they say $2 a day, they mean it is the same all over the world. They don't use just the regular exchange rates that, that we normally see when comparing money figures across countries. They use something called purchase power parity, which is trying- PPP. PPP. It's trying to show what can you buy with a given amount of money. And, and so when they say $2 a day, they mean we look at what $2 buys, where dollars are, which is the United States, and then- they see, well, how much money would it take to buy that same amount in South African rand or Afghanistan Afghanis or Iraqi dinars or whatever it is. And and so if you want to understand what life is like at $2 a day in the rest of the world, you have to understand what life would be like here at $2 a day. Which is impossible to picture. Like It feels like nobody could live in the U.S. on $2 a day. But what would happen if, if you had to? So uh, first of all, you would you would be homeless, right? I mean, that, uh, I think it would be pretty much impossible anywhere in the U.S. to, to afford rent. Um, but maybe if if there was land and space available, you would build a small shack, um, but probably by hand. You you would not most likely have running water or or uh, access to electricity. You would heat your little shack with with wood, maybe that you gather. You would use your money to buy 
lots of staple foods like, you know, big bags of potatoes or, you know, relatively low quality rice, that kind of thing. In other words, you would be able to make it maybe, but you'd be living an awful lot like people in the rest of the world who live on $2 a day. Yeah, it sounds really, really hard. Now, there is no argument about whether or not it's hard. It is really, really hard. But what makes it a tiny bit less hard, and this is the point of today's podcast, is the lesson that I learned from the book Portfolios of the Poor. Um, it, it describes what happens when it's not just one person living on $2 a day. When it's a whole country or a whole community living on $2 a day, you start seeing institutions and systems build up. They certainly don't make life easy or lovely, but they make life a little bit less difficult. Uh, basically, what what these guys did is they wanted to understand how the world's poorest people spend money. And by the way, $2 a day, that's not the world's poorest people. There are people who live on a dollar a day, people who live on less than a dollar a day. Um, but $2 a day is, is pretty poor by any standard. And, and so what they did is they started off in Bangladesh, and then they moved to India and South Africa and other parts of the world. And these researchers would go to poor families living on, on average around $2 a day, and they would, the researchers would fill out these diaries. They'd ask them, how much money did you make this week? How much did you spend this week? Did you borrow any? Did you lend any? How did you use your money? And uh, Daryl Collins, who's a senior associate at Bankable Frontiers, that's a consultancy that tries to figure out how to get uh, poor people around the world to have better access to the financial system. She explains exactly what they were looking for. We wanted to really open up our minds to the different ways that people manage their money. So if I was talking about my financial instruments, I'd be talking about a bank account. I'd be talking about a 401k. I'd be talking about things like that. We, in with these households, we just wanted to broaden that definition. So not only were we talking about retirement annuities, bank accounts, loans from a bank, we were also talking about money lender loans, savings clubs, barrel societies, um, saving money under the, under the mattress, um, rent arrears, uh, um, income arrears. Think of it this way. Uh, finance is a relationship between money and time at its, at its heart. Um, when, whenever you talk about financial relationships, you're really mo- talking about money being moved from one place to another against time. Either you're saving uh, some of your, your cash flows forward, so you're putting it aside, or you're borrowing your cash flows. So any time that you have a movement of money that you're not just simply um, getting paid something or spending on something, but you're sort of trying to move against time, that's what we would call a financial instrument. So wait, Adam, can I just ask you, before you were saying, so the thing is here is that, you know, it's people who all live in a community where everyone around you is getting by on $2 a day. So it's different than, you know, one person in the U.S. doing this, but you're in a community, so it seems more normal and you're starting to figure out ways to kind of make that $2 stretch. Exactly. Even people making very little money who become money lenders, they're lending pennies to their neighbors so that their neighbors can get through a tough time, or they're creating savings clubs and other vehicles, which which we'll get into. Um, when we had Daryl Collins and we also um, brought in her co-author, Jonathan Morduck, and I, I do want to note that in this um, thing that Caitlin, our producer, wrote, I, it is my favorite ever pronunciation guide to someone's name. It just says more duck. So it's not fewer duck. It's <laughs> Jonathan Moore duck. Um, he's a professor of economics and public policy at NYU. And 
he said that there, there's three different types of relationships people have with money. So one is really formal. We're used to that, like banks and, you know, stocks and bonds and that kind of thing. Um, another is a less formal relationship that exists, particularly in many parts of the poorer world, microfinance organizations that might be kind of a collective, nonprofit groups that might be, you know, helping people with their money. Um, and the third way, which becomes more and more important, the poorer you get, are completely informal ways of money, like simply asking a friend to hold your money for you so that you won't spend it. Um, Daryl told me this story of one couple whose relationship with money focused almost entirely on these informal relationships. Let me tell you about Kaya and Nandipa. Kaya and Nandipa, you know, they're a couple and they, they're in their early 30s and they have a um, an older son and a six-year-old. And they're interesting. They live in this little village of Lugangani outside of Mount Frere. Um, it's down this... It takes about an hour to get there from the main road down this very rough, rugged, muddy, muddy road. The big problem with getting there in the winter is that it rains so much and the mud is slippery like snow. Um, and when we met Kaya and Namdipa, one of the problems that we had with them is that they don't get along. You know, this, this is a household where they just really didn't talk. So we had to interview them separately. And there were things that they told us that the other person didn't actually know such as how much the husband earned and how much savings the wife had. Um, the husband actually... They were lying to each other. They were lying to each other, from... yes. I mean, this happened to be a household, and there were plenty of households out there where this wasn't the case. They worked, along, they worked alongside each other beautifully. And, but this, this couple happened to be a situation where he worked for a local little shop, um, and that shop was owned by the son of one of the, uh, one of the headsmen, and he had a very small little salary. And and what kind of financial instruments would they use? The, on the phone earlier, you told me that uh, part of the issue with, with people who live on $2 a day is it's not they wake up every morning and someone hands them $2. They right. make 15 bucks and then they don't make anything for three weeks and then they Exactly. Make... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the – I mean, he had his small salary from, from the Spaza shop. Um, and he he used to earn, say, about, you know, $85 a month. And he would get paid um, every every uh, at the end every month at the end of the month. They also did have a child grant from the government, and that was worth about twenty five bucks a month. And that would get paid at the same time every month. And then they also rented out their second room to a student, and he paid them somewhere around five dollars a month. And then every now and then, when they really really needed. Um, they received remittances from a relative. Uh, there were three times during during the study year that they received some remittances. So they'd ask for $10 just to kind of get them through. And this was a gift. This was just a gift. It wasn't a loan um, because we would have recorded it differently if it was a loan. And so all in all, I mean, they got about 120, 128 or so um, dollars every month, but all them, it all came in a lump. So before he got paid or before the grant came or before, um, you know, the uh, the border actually paid them, they would go through a time where they didn't have a lot of cash. So they did a couple of things. Um, they would actually take credit from the, from the small shop where the husband worked. And the wife actually took credit from a different uh, 
shop as well, but the husband didn't know about that. And they both kept money aside. Um, so the husband would get paid, and he'd take a certain amount of money, and he'd sort of hide it. And he'd use that just before, in the house. And then the wife would take a, a, a little bit of money from the grant, and she would stick it somewhere else. Now, when and the other thing that they did, that the wife did in particular, was she paid for a burial society. Now, a burial society is very, very important in South Africa. Um, a burial society is sort of like funeral insurance. Insur- uh, funerals are very important, uh, are very expensive in in Black South African culture. Funerals usually cost about seven months worth of income. It's about you know fifteen hundred dollars or so, and. So the problem is that it's really difficult to gather together that fifteen hundred dollars when a when a funeral happens. And these days, with the high rate of HIV/AIDS, there are a lot of deaths and therefore a lot of funerals. So fifteen hundred dollars for one funeral—that's a huge amount for people living on two dollars a day. Yeah, and this was something that Daryl and Jonathan, her co-author, stressed that they found again and again all over the world that these. People who we look at as as desperately poor, I mean, a family of four or five living on one hundred and twenty dollars a month, um, basically a subsistence level, spending more than a year's wages on a funeral it seems crazy. But she said th- there, there's a big positive side she sees in this that that even some of the poorest people in the world are not living just on a day to day subsistence basis. They do do things that will enrich their lives. So you do have traditional ceremonies that are important to people culturally and emotionally. Um, so funerals is one of those, and it, what I like to liken it to, um, I was at the time that I was doing the field work for this, I had just gotten married, and it kept going through my head that a South African funeral was a lot like an American wedding. And uh, we spend enormous amounts of money on American weddings that, you know, you sort of say, well, gosh, couldn't a young couple at that time put down a down payment on a house? Um, you know, it, there are, just because people are poor doesn't mean that all their hopes and dreams and wishes and reasons for being alive go away. And we find this borne out in other research as, as well, that there is a decent amount of spending on traditional ceremonies. And the traditional ceremony of choice of cultural background uh, in South Africa is the funeral. So, Adam, just going back to this idea of financial instruments, which is sort of interesting to think about here. So the instruments that we're talking about here are borrowing, you know, borrowing from the shop that the guy works at, right, and from neighbors, and they are hiding money, and they're investing in burial societies. Right. And and there's a whole host of instruments. They said that when they interviewed people all over the world, lots of different countries— the fewest number of financial instruments any one person used was four. And these are all very, you know, very, very poor people. So so first off, they might have several burial societies, which I found interesting. You will have um, one burial society pay, to pay for the coffin, another to pay for the meals at the funeral, another um, to pay for transportation, et cetera, et cetera. There's this thing called a ROSCA, which I had not heard of, a Rotating Savings and Credit Association. So so if you think of uh, being poor or actually not even being poor, just anybody, um, you have – Every now and you you want to be able to spend a lot of money every now and then, but you only have very little money. So you could get twelve people together 
And every month, everyone puts $5 in. And each month, one of those 12 people gets $60. So one person might use it for a big trip to the city to get a job. Another person might use it to pay for their kid's school fees so the kid can get learn English or whatever and, and get a better job. Someone else might buy a cheap sewing machine, that kind of thing. And that happens all over the world. So those are just some of the more informal things. This is not a place with a, a building and a sign like a bank. These are just things that come up among desperately poor neighbors and family to figure out how to make money work a little bit better for them. But it is sort of like a bank account, right? Like we have a fun account in our bank, which maybe that's a horrible analogy when we're talking about burials. But, you know, we we have money that we put into this account every once in a while, and then, you know, we'll take out a big lump sum. So, But this isn't like banks. You know, we're not talking about banks that service these populations. Now, there were people in some of these countries that did have bank accounts, but as a, as a general rule, that wasn't a main thing. And mostly they just used it to get government payments. If they had, like in South Africa, as you know, Hannah, uh, the government does have um, – a, a welfare program that that helps um, these desperately poor people with with a little bit of money, and that money all goes to bank accounts. But Daryl and Jonathan say that they pretty much just withdraw that money from the account the second it it comes in and and take and put it into their informal financial system. Even though they would have a bank account, even though these grants would go through the bank account, a lot of households would just withdraw the entire thing and keep the money in the house or or. The pattern would usually look like this. I mean, it was a very sort of monthly cycle where the grant would get paid into the bank account, the household would go to the bank, withdraw the entire amount, they would go to the shop and do some sort of big shop. You know, they buy their staples for the month. You know, they'd buy a big bag of mealy meal. They would buy sunlight soap. They would buy, um, they might buy some sugar. Um, they you know, they buy, they buy a couple of their real basic things, their basic foodstuffs. They would also go and they'd, um, if they had any credit, like let's say that they went and they got a paraffin stove on credit from one of the stores and they were paying it off over six months, they'd go and they pay their credit. Um, and then the next day maybe would be the meetings because usually barrel society meetings happen once a month. And it would normally be on a Sunday. They go to their burial society meeting. They would pay their burial society premiums. Um, they would go to their savings club. They would pay in their savings club dues. Uh, and they would get rid of their cash in this way. So all these payments all happened in a big flurry during the middle of the month. And then households would then keep the money in their house and they'd live off of it whatever they needed. Let's say they had, you know, some high-frequency items to buy. Milk. Uh, milk and bread would be sort of a, a common thing where they buy that every every couple of days. Um, or if they had any sort of emergency, they would just wanted to keep the money in the house. So even though they had a bank account, they didn't really use it for, for savings. Um, you need something more effective than just simply giving people a bank account. Can I pick up on that? Yeah. I think one of the most surprising things and I think one of the most powerful lessons was that even though people had bank accounts, that that wasn't necessarily the place that they actually did their financial business. They often would save, accumulate with their friends in a Roscoe. 
And then once they've accumulated, then they might put money into the bank account. But just having a bank account isn't enough to um, help people save. And we started to see what it was about Raskas that was really key and what it was about other kinds of burial societies and clubs. And part of it is the ability to take little bits and put it in in regular ways, that discipline. And another part is the social element. One of Daryl's respondents you know, said, if I don't put in my the installment into the savings club, I really feel like I'm letting my friends down. Your local bank doesn't do that for you. And that's why even with access to formal finance, people are um, still holding on to a lot of these informal mechanisms. So that's pretty interesting to think about. I mean, I don't have that relationship with my bank teller, definitely, you know, but I do have, you know, a nice relationship with my friends. So if I had all my money, I didn't use a bank and I just had, you know, all my money in cash, what's the relationship that I would have? You know, maybe I would give some to my friends. Maybe I'd give some to you, Adam. Actually, I probably wouldn't give you some. Oh, you would, Hannah. Come on. We would start a <laughs> Planet Money staff Rosca where each month one of us gets to use the money to go off and learn skills to function in a recessionary economy. Right. So, I, I mean, I guess so the idea here is that you're able to successfully save. I mean, is that the goal, that this is sort of a way to get out of poverty? It, it's not so much that you will save so much money that eventually you'll get out of poverty because these people – when, when you're making two dollars a day, you, you, you know at best, you, you know you might have a few pennies here or there. Uh, there's sort of two goals Daryl and Jonathan have. So, so one thing is to just recognize what exists now, so that when aid groups and others come into these poor worlds, maybe they can operate through the system that exists rather than you know imagine that everyone has bank accounts or something like that. Um, the other thing is. You can make it easier for people to save up a bit of money to, to say, send their oldest kid to school to get an education so that they can, you know, make, make more money and help the family. Or they even described a guy who, who saved up enough that he was able to buy a, an old car and that allowed him to become a taxi driver and that made him some more money. But what Jonathan Mordek says is it's not so much what you buy buy, the physical things you buy with the money, it's having enough backup money that you have a sense of stability. One of the things which is clearest in coming out of the financial diaries is that we tend to think of poverty just as living under a dollar a day or two dollars a day. But that misses the fact that that's just an average and that the condition of being poor really is bound up with the stress, the um, risks of your money going up and down, living in a condition of profound vulnerability and volatility. And being able to save, having a cushion, isn't just a strategy to accumulate. It's a strategy to have some stability, to have a stronger kind of emotional foundation, physical foundation, uh, broader foundation from which to you know, live the rest of your life. And that in itself intrinsically matters, not as an instrument to creating a better business, but in itself having that kind of stability is something we take for granted, but the poor of this world can't. So, Hannah, I hope that over the next weeks, months, maybe years, Planet Money pays a lot of attention to the poorest people in the world. This is, I think, the single most important question in economics maybe more than just economics, uh, how, how come 
even after a couple centuries of, of growth and prosperity in a relatively small part of the world, so much of the world is still impoverished. And, and I'd like us to do as much as we can to understand that better. So I hope this is just the first of many, many conversations. Um, and maybe some of them won't take place in a studio in New York, but we'll actually go visit some of the world's poor and, and understand their lives on their terms. That would be great. Yeah. And we're, I mean, especially interested in the way that sort of money moves around and the complexities here. It's interesting about this, Adam, is there's sort of you're talking about somebody who lives on $2 a day, but you're really looking at it in more complex terms of just somebody who's poor and struggling to get by each day. Um, so yeah, we, we love stories about money moving around and, and how we all use it. There's an interesting conversation on our blog right now about compensation. We had done this podcast on Monday about teacher pay, and a lot of you wrote in. We have information now about how video game developers get paid and mechanics. We would love to hear how pay works where wherever your workplace is and how you get paid and how you think you should get paid and uh, how you think Adam should give me a big fat bonus. Yeah, at, at, right after we end world poverty, I will have that <laughs> to you. Check out all of that on npr.org slash money or send us an email at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Circle money to